welcome to the Scientific American Podcast, Science Talk, posted on August 24th, 2011. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast... Four or five people who are traipsing around in in a, a remote part of a park, and they've got bags of stuff. They, unfortunately, uh, you know, they explain what they're doing to the police, and the police are usually quite curious about what they're up to and, you know, find it interesting. That's award-winning science writer Carl Zimmer. He had an article in the New York Times in July about researchers studying evolution in the wildlife and other organisms in New York City. And our September single-topic issue of Scientific American is all about cities, so we thought that even though Carl didn't write this particular piece for us, we'd talk to him anyway, which I did by phone. Hi, Carl. How are you? Good, good. Good. Uh, you have an article in, that was in the New York Times almost a month ago, July 25th, but it actually should have been in our city's issue of Scientific American. Uh, fortunately, it's available for free on the web for anybody to read, and it's a really fascinating look at evolution and uh, biodiversity and wildlife in New York City and by extension in urban environments. How did you wind up writing this article? Um, there was a paper that came out in Science uh, earlier this year about some fish in the Hudson River uh, along New York City that had evolved resistance to a pollutant. And I was talking with my editor, and he was saying, well, that's kind of neat. And I said, well, it, it it is neat that they've been able to show that, but it's not as if that fish is the only thing in New York City that's evolving. I mean, lots of things are evolving in New York. And my editor said, oh, really? Well, why don't you write about that? So uh, basically, I started um, you know, looking around and meeting up with um, biologists who study evolution in one way or another that's happening today in the city. Let's talk about those fish first, because it's a fascinating example of how environmental pressures can select for particular uh, genetic uh, arrays. And uh, why don't you just tell us what happened with that fish, what the pressure was, how the fish responded. Sure. So, um, you know, in the um, mid-1900s, um, the Hudson River was still um, awash in a lot of different kinds of pollution. And um, there were PCBs, for example, that uh, General Electric was dumping into the river. And, uh, you know, there's been a big lawsuit people may be familiar with about actually getting General Electric to start cleaning up the polluted sediments. Well, um, you know, for some of the fish there, it was really a matter of uh, life or death um, to to be able to withstand these pollutants like PCBs. Um, and there's one fish in particular, the tomcod, which spends a lot of time down in the muck uh, where there's a lot of concentrated uh, amounts of pollutants um, where uh, it was could be really quite fatal. Um, and it turns out that there was a rare mutation um, in the population there. Also, it's also found in Long Island Sound. Uh, and this mutation makes these tomcod uh, resistant to PCBs. Um, and so basically, um, it prevents the PCBs from interfering with how they develop. Uh, and so uh, these tomcod are able to survive and 
places that would be fatal for a lot of other fish. And this mutation is found in just about all the tomcod in, in the Hudson. And what that means is that it's spread very quickly in just a matter of a couple decades. So, you know, not only is evolution happening in, in New York City, in the New York metropolitan region, but uh, it's happening very quickly. Yeah, because you, you're not seeing a, a 1% survival advantage, for example. You're seeing a 100% survival advantage. So in a situation like that, you're going to get this turnover incredibly fast. Yeah, I mean, that's a general lesson of evolution is that, um, you know, if, if you have a really, really strong selective pressure and you have just enough genetic variation that some are going to be able to barely survive uh, this, this uh, pressure on them, there's going to be really fast evolution. Um, you know, in other cases, evolution happens on a more stately way uh, over centuries or thousands of years or even millions of years. But, um, you know, there's nothing like a good dose of pollution to really uh, speed up evolution quickly. And you also talk about these worms that uh, had a had an issue with cadmium. Right. So um, upriver a bit from the city, there was a uh, factory that made batteries. And they also dumped a lot of um, waste into the river, including cadmium and other heavy metals. Uh, and in the 1980s, some scientists who were looking at worms that grow and live in a cove, actually near West Point, they you know they found that this cove was was loaded with cadmium, and it was so much that if you took a worm from another part of the river and stuck it in that kind of sediment, it would just die. And yet they found that there were worms there that were living, that were doing just fine. So they they did a study of these worms and um, were able to identify the traits that let them live there. And basically, they, they take the cadmium and they sort of pull it out of their system um, and, you know, to sort of sequester it off safely in, in their uh, sort of skin, as it were. So actually, this was actually a problem for, for people. Um, so this is an impact that evolution can have on people because the worms were able to live with this incredibly high amount of pollution and then they get eaten by crabs and other, uh, high, you know, predators. And then people would try to eat the crabs or other things. And these crabs would have very high levels of cadmium because they were eating these evolved worms. So what's interesting in this case is that, um, you know, the EPA actually cleaned up this site, uh, in the 1990s and scientists, sort of kept track to see what happened to the worms as this this change in their environment happened. And within just a few generations, um, vulnerable worms from other parts of the Hudson started moving in and interbreeding with the resistant worms. And so now, on average, the worms there are just about as vulnerable to cadmium as any other worm. So evolution has, has gone in reverse. In that case, because we see, as you said, the the uh, vulnerable ones move back in. So it's not that uh, we have uh, selection pressure so much as there's it's just swamped out. I mean, the pressure has stopped existing, so the the situation just gets swamped away by uh, the the incomers. Yeah, there's no advantage anymore to being a mutant that can resist a lot of cadmium. There's no premium there, so your chances of you know, reproducing are just as good as any other. And since you get worms kind of, you know, migrating around, um, these resistant worms get kind of swamped out and they're just going to disappear. 
And you also talk about these guys who were right in the, the little urban parks within New York City are going around catching white-footed mice, which are not the same species of mouse that we'll find in our houses or apartments in the city. And uh, their story is really interesting. What are they looking for? Yeah, so um, the, the mice that people are familiar with in New York that get into their apartments um, and eat their food, those are house mice, and they're actually not native to the city. Um, so people brought them with them. Uh, Europeans did when they arrived. Before then, though, there were mice in New York, and one species was this white-footed mouse, and it's still in New York, um, you know, four centuries later. Um, the thing is that uh, the white-footed mouse doesn't like to go into your apartment. Um, in fact, it really much prefers to stay in forested areas. And you can find it if you know how to catch mice in uh, New York City's parks. So um, there are the scientists that I uh, met up with who were curious about um, what has been happening to this population of mice in response to the, this wholesale transformation of their old home. So New York City had been, you know, mostly forested, uh, you know, four or five hundred years ago. I mean, the, the uh, Native Americans lived here, did manage the land, they did do burning and so on. So some parts were were kind of open meadows and so on. But in any case, there was lots of kind of continuous woods for them to live in. And now, you know, the woods are, um, they're in parks uh, and they're scattered around the city. So they have been catching mice all around New York and Queens and Bronx and so on. And I went along with them when they went into um, a, a park in Washington Heights, um, really kind of out of the way place called Highbridge Park. And they catch the mice, they measure them and so on, and they take some of their DNA because they want to see how uh, genetically similar the mice are in different parts of the city. And they got a really surprising result, which is basically that there's just about no flow of genes going from the mice in one park to the mice in other parks. So it's as if, as if these mice are now living on islands. And... You know, in, in the wild, islands are a, a very interesting place in terms of evolution because, you know, things get isolated and they just adapt to their very small little place. And, you know, you get things like a pigeon landing on an island and becoming the dodo bird. You get really weird transformations after long enough. So they've been looking at the DNA to see if the mites are adapting to their particular environments. And they are finding that um, if you compare the mice in New York to mice like off in the wild, you will see that there are, are hundreds of genes that are mutating. And what's interesting is that they seem to be genes that are involved with things that a mouse would have to face in the city. So, for example, resisting chemicals. That's something important. But then also there are um, immune system genes that are evolving in a different way in the city, in the city mice versus the country mice. You know, they may be facing a lot of different kinds of uh, diseases in the city as well. Um, so, you know, you've got um, evolution happening, you know, right in the city with these little mice. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. So you can, 
you can think of it almost as an opportunity for speciation. You know, if it, if it went on for uh, a number of more centuries, um, you know, you after a while you would have you could have barriers emerging um, as these mice became more and more different from each other and from mice in the country. Um, you know, the thing is, in evolution, you know, if those barriers aren't high enough, if, uh, you know, animals have a chance to, to interbreed, they will, and they'll mix the genes back together again, and then there won't be much difference. But if you just kept this process going and long enough, you would have, um, you would have the evolution of new species. I mean, that's how you get new species on islands like, uh, Darwin's finches or the dodo. They, this is the process that happens. And then, uh, you know, a sort of an obvious example at the, uh, microbial level. I mean, any hospital can be a, an island for evolutionary change, but, uh, you have some examples in the story. Of well, one in particular, very clear example of something going on uh, within a hospital setting. Yeah, so um, you know, ev- evolution um, is not something that is just happening to a fish off in the river that you'll never meet, or a mouse in a park that you'll never meet. Um, it's also happening with bacteria that you might meet, and you really don't want to because they're going to make you really sick. Um, so there's a really um, well-studied example of bacterial evolution in New York City involving um, a bacteria called uh, Klebsiella, which can cause pneumonia and other kind of life-threatening infections. Um, and uh, it used to be that you could um, treat this Klebsiella with certain kinds of antibiotics called carbapenems, and they were pretty effective. But uh, unfortunately, in the 1990s, Scientists started seeing bacteria um, circulating around in hospitals in Brooklyn that were resistant to these antibiotics, which is a really terrible thing because uh, these bacteria are resistant to a lot of other antibiotics as well. So once you can't use the carbapenems, then you're really up a creek because the only antibiotics you have left are ones that are really nasty. They cause kidney damage and things like that. In fact, Doctors had abandoned them in the 1960s once they got better antibiotics, and now those antibiotics don't work. And you can, and the scientists were able to chart this, the evolution and spread of this new kind of Klebsiella, this new kind of bacteria through the hospitals of New York City, you know, being in Brooklyn and then in, in Queens and Manhattan and so on. And then after a while, um, they started seeing this very same strain, um, in other parts of the country and in countries like France and Greece and Israel. So it's unfortunately been, you know, New York's gift to the world. It's uh, reminiscent of our um, multidrug-resistant tuberculosis back in the 1990s. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, there are a lot of these um, different bacteria that um, evolve, particularly in cities, uh, and in the hospitals in cities. Um, this is, we've, you know, the thing, the point I was trying to make in the article is that we've created these environments where evolution is going off in, in new directions. So you have these mice that are basically, you know, living on islands in the middle of a city. Um, and you have fish that are, um, able to withstand pollutants that they never faced in millions of years before. And you have bacteria that are becoming incredibly resistant to specifically to the drugs we're trying to use to kill them. 
Uh, and all this, all this and more is happening in New York. Tell us a little bit. You talk about the, uh, the guys who are, uh, looking for the white-footed mice and also some other researchers who are examining ant species in medians on busy streets in Manhattan. Tell us about the kinds of particular challenges that these researchers face. Cause as you point out in the article, they've had some run-ins with the police and they've also had run-ins with people who are avoiding run-ins with the police. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Doing doing field work uh, as an evolutionary biologist in New York City has some challenges. You know, sometimes the cops stop you because they don't know what you're doing. And uh, other times, you know, uh, people report you or they steal your, your material. Um, so it's it's certainly got its challenges. But these researchers based at Columbia, who, who Columbia University, who want to figure out um, what's happening to the biodiversity of New York, you know, and, and that might sound weird, like New York has biodiversity. But, you know, the fact is that when Europeans arrived, there were a whole bunch of uh, plants and animals and, and other uh, species that were living in New York and, you know, they were found in, you know, other parts of New England or the middle eastern part of the United States. But New York was just a really interesting place, ecologically speaking. And uh, there are still a number of species that were native to New York then and are still there. So the white-footed mice, mouse being one example, but there are lots of plants and so on that are native New Yorkers. Um, a lot of those natives have become extinct. Um, they just couldn't withstand um, urbanization the way, say, the white-footed mouse could. So there were lots of orchids, for example, um, that were um, native to uh, New York City, um, and they disappeared. And, uh, you know, actually Manhattan was home to 21 native species of orchids, um, and they're all gone. So the, these scientists are, are, are looking both at what natives are still around and which uh, of the immigrants, um, the, the invasive species, have showed up and have been able to establish themselves. Um, so one of the really interesting ways that they look at this is they go looking for ants. And they thought, well, you know, we're really interested in how an, an artificial environment um, shapes the balance between native and artificial species. What's a, what better artificial environment could you hope for than a median running down in the middle of Broadway? So, um, so they go out there with their ant traps and they jump into trees and in, in these medians and looking for ants and, um, and they find all sorts of surprising things. They find that, you know, they're along some of these medians, they found 13 different species of ants, which in itself is pretty amazing because these medians are like, you know, 10 feet wide and, and, you know, 100 feet long, something like that. And, uh, uh, nine of those 13 species are, are native. So the, even these medians can be cradles of biodiversity and can be sustaining species that might otherwise become extinct. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. But uh, I guess, you know, from, from the ants point of view, it's still a pretty big environment. It is a pretty big environment. Uh, and also, um, <clears throat> certainly for, um, some species of ants, like uh, there, there's one species called the pavement ant, which came from Europe and settled in New York very comfortably. Um, it can just walk around on sidewalks. Um, it doesn't care at all. It can be block. It can go blocks away from its uh, its nest uh, and be perfectly fine, and somehow find enough food to, to get by on. 
Um, so there are certainly some ants that are really rugged and able to withstand the urban environment. Uh, others that, you know, might just sort of have a very small, um, uh, range, you know, and they just stay in the, in the, you know, the areas where there are trees and, uh, soil and so on. Um, so, uh, you know, different ants will cope with New York in different ways. And the uh, researchers who are capturing these ants use a device that has an unfortunate resemblance to a crack pipe. <laughs> yeah, it's an it's called an aspirator. Um, so, ba- you know, you don't want to pick up an ant with your fingertips because, you know, you'll, either it'll get away or you'll crush it. So what they do is they, they have this, um, they have a glass tube with a couple, um, glass pipe, I should say, with a couple rubber tubes coming out of it. And you stick one tube next to the ant and you put the other tube in your mouth and you sort of suck in. And rather than getting a mouthful of ants, uh, the ant just ends up in the glass bottle. And, uh, yeah, when you take that out on Broadway with police going by, um, it can be a little awkward. <laughs> yeah, some of the researchers, uh, the, the mice guys who are, you know, poking around in the woods and the ant guys describe getting confronted by police with the uh, guns drawn well yeah you know that you, well you have to think about it there are you know maybe uh four or five people who are traipsing around in in a, a remote part of a park they aren't out in the in a meadow where other people are sunbathing or playing basketball they're in the sort of part of the park that very few people go to and they've got bags of stuff <laughs> so right. you know the, the suspicion is oh they're gonna you know be whipping up some crystal meth or something like that um you know uh they unfortunately you know, uh you know they the police you know they explain what they're doing to the police and the police are usually um quite curious about what they're up to and you know find it interesting so uh, mm-hmm. it, it, it ends well as far as i know <laughs> well i guess it should be pointed out that researchers in the uh the more exotic locations like the Amazon can also find themselves confronted by people with drawn guns. Yeah, exactly. And, and in those cases, things may not end so well. So it's a fascinating article and, uh, you, anybody can find it on the web. You don't even need a time subscription as long as you haven't used your minimum allotment for the month, but you, it's also available on your own website. That's right. That's right. I put it on uh, carlzimmer.com. Um, there's a, I have an archive of articles. And so if you look at it, look for it uh, from uh, this uh, July. Well, you must have some clout with the Times where they're letting you run the articles on your own website. (laughs) With their permission. More from Carl Zimmer in part two of our conversation coming your way soon. In the meantime, get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, where you can also check out various exclusive web features related to our September issue, All About Cities. For example, you don't want to miss the toilet. I mean, the slideshow about the history of the toilet. Hey, follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet each time a new article hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.